Well, again, I want to thank Brother John for leading us in prayer and for reading the passage for this morning. And if you have your Bible, I pray that you have turned as an individual, as a couple, as a family, maybe even as more than one family, gather around wherever you're looking at this. Now take your Bibles, get some some paper, get a journal, and, and allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak to you this morning through His Word on this Father's Day of 2020. I have titled my series, Conversations with Christ. We're now going to deal with the last uh, installment of this great miracle. And I've called it the loving, powerful, calling voice of Jesus. But before I get into that, I got to deal with the obvious. Today is Father's Day. It's June 21st of 2020. And like a month ago, when we had Mother's Day, I'm going to submit that this Father's Day will be remembered. But not just for the coronavirus, not just because of lockdowns and economic uh, war, dire warnings, not just because of the quarantines and bubbles and all of the things of the words that we've now created that will likely be a part of our lives for the next hundred years. See, there's something else to me that's afoot here in the 21st century and this thing called Father's Day. See, Father's Day could also be remembered as the day we are wondering now more than ever as a culture what we're actually celebrating. I mean, what is Father's Day? What does it even mean anymore to be a dad? I don't know about you, but if I let go of my emotions, I can say that we live in a confused world. We're stressed out. I believe we actually are more afraid than ever before. We're struggling with relationships, with defining who we are, why we exist. I would submit for you this morning as you're watching this that survival is the name of the game right now, isn't it? We are seeing more and more the reshaping of culture and our society. Tragically, we live in a gotcha media culture. We long for heroes, while all the while we're tearing everything and everyone down. We hyperanalyze everyone's past. We want our society to be woke or accepting or loving, patient, kind, and encouraging. However, it doesn't seem like we have any room for past mistakes. The ability for someone to actually grow and mature and learn and change. I feel like we live in a society where we assume the worst about each other while demanding no one assume the worst about me. And then there's our 24-hour social media, instant access TV, know everything about everyone, voyeuristic in real-time world. And all that does is simply expose everybody's inconsistencies and hypocrisies. And so what are you left with? Fear, suspicion, and a lack of real friendship. We're all afraid to say what we're thinking or feeling 
Because if it's not in keeping with the mob's mentality, you'll become a victim to whoever is in power at the time. Oh, and by the way, that changes from day to day or issue to issue. Or the other extreme is you're left with folks making viral videos, venting their feelings in the moment, I might add. And that becomes not only a viral video, but then it becomes a cause all for about three to seven days till the next viral video will come along. So how do we process all of this on Father's Day of 2020? I've tried to take us on a journey for the last month, four weeks, walking through John chapter 11. And as you've heard the Word of God read to you, we've considered how Jesus uses our trials... He'll use our emotions, our struggles, even our questions and our doubts. Dare I say, Jesus will use our worst fears, our hurts, our confusion about life's circumstances. Are you ready for this? To display his power and his love and his perspective and his sovereign plans. However, On this Father's Day of 2020, with manhood more confused than ever before, with our world confused in ways we've not seen in our lifetime, I also believe that John chapter 11 is a passage before us that gives us hope. It'll give us a reason to trust. It gives us a blueprint for how to navigate the hurts of life, the ups and downs we all experience And why do I say this? Because John 11, if I'm really going to boil it down to a word, John chapter 11 gives us a Savior, a true hero, Jesus Christ, loving, powerful, authoritative, yet gentle and kind and patient. One who understands our sorrows and knows our needs. One who knows us and yet loves us. Jesus who is both willing and able. Jesus who is perfect. Yet there is no past sin in his life. There are no skeletons in his closet. Only love, holy and blameless. Jesus the ultimate hero. And that, my friends, is what John wants you and I to discover. It's this discovery that will lead you to come to a conclusion. That conclusion requires you to make a decision. And that decision, according to John, is going to lead to life. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is the 60th time I'm going to quote these two verses to you, Calvary. Now Jesus, John says, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And John says, I didn't write them in this book, but the ones I did... The raising of Lazarus from the dead. It has been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, that's the decision you're going to make, here's the result. You may have life, now watch this, in His name. Not yours, not life as you define it, not how you want it to be. 
You're going to have abundant life, and we're going to get to that in John chapter 15 and onward, but it's in His name. And so we sang, good, good Father. I want to look this morning at the ultimate example of Father. But we're also going to see that Jesus is our example. So whether you're single or you're married, whether you have kids or you're without kids, whether you're male or female, whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter what your social standing is. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your status in life is. When we come before Jesus, we see the one whom we can all turn to. He is the one we can all trust. He's the one we can all follow. Martha is going to see this. Mary will too. The disciples will learn it and the crowd will experience. Oh, by the way, as we're going to see the next time I preach, religion will reject it. The world lies about it. Satan wants to destroy it, but the love, power, and call of Jesus still prevails. As the song says, Death could not hold him. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring the praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. And by the way, Jesus has no rival. He has no equal. Now and forever, our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all name. Calvary, can you get a more beautiful name indeed than the name of Jesus? And so, dads, listen. John chapter 11, 34 to 44 is going to challenge you. But it will encourage you. Men and women of all ages Whatever you're feeling today, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, if you're hurting, if you're sick, if you're struggling, maybe you're like me, I'm tired. Are you anxious and afraid? Are you searching? If you're younger and wondering if all of this stuff that mom and dad have taken you to and the church you've attended is real and true. If Jesus is worth it, if you're a young adult wondering, is it worth it? The risk? Does it make sense to live life with your eyes on Jesus? Or maybe you're older and you're a little bit disillusioned or discouraged. You're trying to make sense in life. You're going through a midlife crisis. You've been burned by a relationship. Maybe you've lost a loved one or you've been betrayed by a friend or a pastor or a church. You have failed or you have regrets in life. Does the world both scare you and yet entice you? Do you long for love and for friendship and safety and peace? Then John chapter 11, this passage is for you because Jesus is the answer. Not because I promised this, but because Jesus does. No, I'm not going to lie to you. I testify like the woman at the well. I am that person. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is why I love him. I've met Jesus. He loves me. I want you to know he's forgiven me and he is changing me and he knows everything about me. He knows all of my sin, 
all my weaknesses and my struggles and my fears. And by the way, he never leaves me. He'll never give up on me. He takes all my failures, has taken all my shame, all my guilt. He uses my trials and my suffering, and he provides me with hope and purpose and rest and peace. And this Father's Day, at this time in our history, will you and I, indeed, will the whole world acknowledge our need to see and hear and experience the loving, powerful call of Jesus today. So let's break our passage down. I just got three points for you this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to look at verses 34 to 38, and I want you to marvel at the love of Christ. If you're writing it down, marvel. Look at the passage at the love of Christ Because John gives us an insider's view to the greatest miracle ever done in human history. A man has been dead for four days. Now listen to me, folks. I don't mean to be disparaging, but it's not like the book and movie. He wasn't dead 90 minutes in heaven or eight hours. Four days, 96 hours. No one has ever come to life from that. John wants us to take note of this sign more than ever. More verses, more narrative are assigned to this miracle than all the other six in John's gospel. And I believe he does that for two reasons. Number one, it's because of the position of it in John's gospel. It's the last one of the seven signs. I've already read to you John's purpose in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. But this one, the raising of Lazarus from the dead four days after, is the crescendo of how John breaks his gospel. Some theologians call it the book of signs. Because John shapes his gospel. Verses, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 is the introduction. Then chapter 1, 19 through chapter 12 is called the book of signs. And then chapter 13 to chapter 20 is called the book of exaltation, and chapter 21 is the conclusion. John has given us seven signs, and up to this point, he's given us five of seven I am statements. So each sign has a purpose, a meaning. Do you remember that first miracle all the way back in John chapter 2 when Jesus turned water into wine, symbolizing his power to give life? One man writes, this seventh sign is the climactic sign. It demonstrates Jesus' power over death. And by the way, that foreshadows his own resurrection about eight days from now. But the other reason you've got to marvel at this miracle is because it displays God's love, Jesus' love, the power of love, the call of love, the response of love, the effect of love. Eight days from now, the greatest display of God's love and power and call will take place two miles from there on a hill called Calvary. Is it any wonder that Bill Gaither said, I believe that Christ who was slain on the cross has the power to change lives today, for he changed me completely. A new life is mine, and that is why by the cross I will say, oh, I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe whatever the cost, and when time has surrendered and earth is no more, I'll still cling to the old rugged cross. 
This will be the anthem of Mary and Martha. It'll be the anthem of the disciples. Of course, it's going to be the song of Lazarus. And if you look at verse 45, it'll be the anthem of so many others. And my prayer this morning is that it will be said of you and I and many people in the city of St. John's that I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. But my family, church family, stop now. Stop. Wherever you're watching this, listen. I want you to take note in this passage, John 11, 34 to 44, and even back further, look at the love of God. In verse 33, we're told that Jesus being deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In verse 35, Jesus wept. In verse 36, See how he loved him. In verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. Is this not the greatest collection of Jesus' emotions in all the Bible? He's moved. He's troubled. He weeps. He grieves. He looks around him and he sees the effect of sin. His holy compassion sees the sting of death, the fear and the hurt. He looks and he sees the disappointment He sees the hopelessness, the lack of control that humans feel. He sees how Satan, that fraudulent lion, gleefully watches the destruction of humanity. But notice in our passage, then he tells the crowd, take away the stone. Take away the stone. Jesus has displayed his emotions. So he told Martha that Lazarus will live again. He told the disciples back in the beginning that God's glory will be displayed. Now watch and see this enough. With those words, his tension is released. It's almost like after all of these descriptions of his emotions, he says, enough now with the tears and the wailing. Enough honor has been bestowed upon death. Against the power of death, God's glory will now enter in the arena. And he says, take that stone away. But watch Martha's response. When she heard those words, what would you have done? It must have been a horrifying thought. A grave, we're told in the first century, in Jews of families of influence, probably was a a tomb that had eight places for for the dead to be buried. So this could have been a tomb with their mother and father and other relatives. There could have been five or six people in here. Think of the emotions you'd be feeling. Four days after the loss of someone that you love, the pain you've already endured, and now simply you want to move on. You've already gone through the disappointment. You've already grieved, and and now Jesus wants the stone removed? He's been dead for four days. Decomposition has started. Do you remember what I said a few weeks ago? We don't like death. We have caskets that get closed for a reason. We don't want to stare into the face of our worst nightmare too long. And yet, now Jesus says, take that stone away. So I don't know about you, but I think you and I might very much respond like Martha did. Look at our passage Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there is going to be an odor. He's been dead for four days. You see, Martha 
is just dealing with what she sees, what she's feeling. She's in the moment. She's only working off of what she can know now. But watch closely. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did you watch that? You see, Jesus says the gospel is believing is seeing. Now, I get it. The world says seeing is believing. Have you not said that? Hey, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Seeing is believing. Not so with God. How many times has Jesus said this to the disciples? Do you remember back earlier in the gospel? They feared death on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus is asleep on the boat. And he says, oh, you of little faith. Do you remember what he said? Go back in chapter 11 to verses 14 to 16. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. Notice that. So that you may believe. Remember, I told you a couple of weeks ago. He is a wonderfully professing Christian who has courageous faith, just not triumphant faith. You see, I believe Martha feels with the man of Mark chapter 9 who was desperate for Jesus to heal his son from demon possession. You remember what he says? And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I can relate to that. Jesus reminds Martha of what he told her back in verse 25. It's the fifth I am statement. He said, Martha, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am more than just something you've read in the Torah or the writings or the prophets. I am the one who is death and life. And she's got to believe in order to see. Watch this now. In order to be saved right with God, we must believe. In order to walk through life trusting Jesus, we must believe. The, song, the old hymn says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take Him at His word.'" Watch this. "'Just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord.'" Don Barnhouse illustrates it like this. It makes all the difference in the world. If you lose your job and say, this catastrophe is not for my dishonor and my hurt. It's for the glory of God that Christ may be magnified. When the doctor comes and says to you, I'm sorry to tell you this, but as far as I know, medical science can do absolutely nothing for you. Your case, from our point of view, is incurable. Then it's a wonderful thing to say, my father has measured this. He it is that put the spoon to my lips. The medicine may be a little bitter, but he knows what he's doing 
Because he's the great physician and he's the great resurrector. He's the one who's constantly able to bring life out of death. And out of the death of my circumstances, he is able to bring the life of joy and victory and triumph. Jesus calls us to the grave entrance of every trial that you might go through today. And it might be fatherhood for some of you. It might be a job or a relationship. It could be. That you're at the grave entrance of acceptance or the desires for friends or to be liked or loved. Maybe you are at the grave entrance of feeling abandoned or alone or taken for granted or advantaged of. Do you feel overlooked or invisible? And Jesus says the whole time, take away the stone in front of that grave. Look full in the face of the greatest trial or hurt or struggle or need. And then he says, believe in me. Now, I want you to gaze in wonder at what he does next because my second point is this. Worship, worship before the power of Christ. What happens next in our passage is nothing nothing short of amazing. We actually get to look in on Jesus conversing with God the Father. Look at our next verse, verse 41. And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. I don't know, but these are powerful words of prayer. Well, well, actually, I think they sound more like powerful words of praise, don't they? Jesus has just told Martha to have faith. And this is why I love Jesus, my Savior. Because he no more tells her to have faith than when he displays it himself. He is our example. He is our Good, good father. He displays faith. Fully God and yet fully man. Now shows what faith and action looks like. He prays to his father. And look at what he does. He looks up and says, Father, I thank you. Now for what? He thanks God that God hears him. And not only that, always hears him. So for a second, dads, listen now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you and I can look at Jesus as our example and then show that example to our families? Jesus no doubt remembers that his disciples are there. He knows that Thomas is there. And he's showing Thomas, hey Thomas, this is what triumphant faith looks like. In Hebrews chapter 13, it promises that God will never leave us and never forsake us. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 4.19 in the context that's on display here, that when you go to God, he'll supply your every need. John the apostle wants us to see the power of the gospel to defeat not only death, but as Richard Phillips writes, if anything should embolden our confidence in God, it is Jesus raising of Lazarus and his own resurrection from the grave. Because here we find that God is not resigned to the status quo. He's not content to say, yep, death, taxes, sin, misery, corruption. No, those who trust in him will find that the Lord is faithful to deliver us, not only from the presence of our trials, but from the power of evil and death and sin. 
You see, we are not Christ and God has not given us the power to raise the dead. But God has promised us power to persevere with joy in every trial. Matt is preaching about that in the gospel, uh, in the epistle of James. There is an unbreakable hope that those who know the resurrection power of God and the result of which is a holy boldness in prayer. But look at this. This prayer is prayer. This power of Christ is seen in that. He says, I said this in account of the people standing around. What does that mean for you and I? Jesus even prays with evangelism in mind. His confidence in God in prayer would be a witness to those around him. Have you not experienced this? When you pray or when you tell someone, I'll pray for you. I know Matt, I don't want to steal his thunder because he experienced this. Matt was having problems with his eyes and headaches and double vision. And he had to call and talk to an optometrist. And while he was on the phone with her, he asked her, hey, how are you doing? And then he asked if he could pray with her. And then he said, do you mind if I pray right now? And this woman was both shocked and filled with emotion that someone would pray and believe. I can start right here, right now, and I can pray to God Almighty, and he hears me. When our faith is in Jesus, it changes us, and it will change the people around you. I believe that prayer changed Martha. It changed Mary. It changed the disciples. It changed the crowd. You see, two weeks ago, I spoke about perspective. When you believe in Him, it changes the way you see everything. And because of that, Jesus is a Savior who we can wholly trust. So even in the faith of death, we look to Him and we find death's conqueror. In my reading, I came across this wonderful example. Gary Burge tells of a woman Her name, let's say her name was Barbara. He said that Barbara's faith encouraged him in his early Christian life. One day she called him as her pastor and said the doctors had discovered an inoperable brain tumor. And over the next two months, Barbara physically wasted away before his eyes. He says, at their last meeting, meeting, she held his hand and spoke with weak body but bold confidence said pastor don't worry about me I'm about to go on the greatest adventure of my life and soon after she died you see many people will speak this way because they're trying to avoid death but Burge says Barbara wasn't like that Her confidence, he writes, was grounded in the strength of her knowledge of Jesus Christ. She knew him. She knew who he was. She knew his power and his ability. She knew that he was waiting for her the moment she died. John chapter 11 says, Jesus overpowered death at the tomb of Lazarus, and Jesus likewise overpowered the dread of death for Barbara. And so, finally... Let's look and respond to the call of Christ. The text tells us that Jesus spoke with a loud voice. Look at the response of the people in verse 44. And then think back to the disciples' response of the calming of the storm. It tells us something of how people viewed the authoritative voice of Jesus. 
Jesus explicitly tells us this back in John chapter 5. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. And he says, don't marvel at this. The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Kent Hughes says, picture the scene. The stone is rolled away. You can see in the darkness the shadow of Lazarus' body and maybe even other bodies. The eager crowd pressed forward and suddenly Everybody grows quiet. The sisters who had been weeping stopped with a sense of expectation. Our Lord's eyes, which before had been weeping, are now aglow. Suddenly Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out in verse 43. He didn't have to shout, but he wanted everyone to comprehend the drama. And church, so ends the lesson. This is the final sign. This is the sum total of Jesus' message. All that's left is Jesus' rejection, his final words to his disciples, his death and burial, and then Jesus will rise again. J.C. Ryle sums up our passage. He goes, the greatness of this miracle cannot possibly be exaggerated. The mind of man can scarcely take in the vastness of the work that was done. Here, in open day, before many hostile witnesses... Four days dead, restored to life in a moment. Here was public proof that Jesus has absolute power over the material world. Here is public proof that when he calls, somebody listens because Jesus called and Lazarus responds. Jesus also, by the way, look at this, along the way, includes you and I in this. Someone removed the stone. Don't you think Jesus could have done that? But look at verse 44. 44, He tells others to unbind him and let him go. And I wonder, how do you think Lazarus lived the next phase of his life? How do you think Lazarus died the second time versus the first time? Do you think his faith was found in Jesus Christ even more powerfully? What about Martha and Mary and the disciples and the crowd? This Jesus who had power over nature and demons and disease and now death. But I love the fact that Jesus has power over our life and our response. Lazarus, come forth. And yet Jesus also calls you and I to be a part of this. Look at it. He says, unbind him and free him. Could that be a preview of Hebrews chapter 10 and 12? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us together hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering and let us not forsake the the assembling of ourselves as the manner of some is, but rather encourage one another to love and good deeds and all the more as you see the day of drawing near. 
And the preacher finishes in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The power is Christ's, but ours is the privilege to play a part in the salvation of others. James Montgomery Boyce says, Well, we can't bring the dead back to life, but we can bring the word of Christ to them. We can do the preparatory work. We can do the work afterward. We can help remove stones, stones of ignorance or error or prejudice or despair. And after the miracle of salvation, we can help new Christians by unwinding the grave clothes of doubt and fear and introspection and discouragement. So Calvary, are you willing to play a role? A.W. Pink says, there is no higher privilege this side of heaven than for us to be used of the Lord in rolling away gravestones and removing grave clothes. And so, the application, I think, is powerful here and life-changing. Father's Day of 2020, will you and I believe in and trust the love, power, and call of Christ in our lives. Hey dads, I challenge you and myself once again. Give your family the best view of God you possibly can. Men, listen now. Love your wife. Show her the power of your worship before God. Let her see you respond to the call of Christ. Then let your kids see it. Let them hear it. Let them feel it. I have asked this question to myself over and over and over again this week. If you were to go to my wife, Debbie, and ask her, if you could go to Brandon or Jordan or Abigail and say to them, what is the most important thing to your husband or your dad? What would be their response? What would be the response of your wife or your children, dads? God, help us that it would be. My dad is not perfect, but his most important thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray that we'll all be Lazarus. Dead in our trespasses and sin, called to life by Christ. See the love of Christ, the powerful prayer of Jesus, our intercessor and our advocate. The call of Jesus Jesus in love is going to lay down his life for you and I, for our wife, for our kids, our families, our boss, our employees, your leaders, your neighbors, your roommate, your classmate, your friend, and your enemy. Jesus will pray on the cross and powerfully lay down his life. He gave up the ghost. He died. Remember what he said in the temple? I laid down my life and I take it up again. And why is that so important? Because in Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the older things are passed away. Dads, teach that to your kids. Live life with this reality. Have faith in Jesus that this is true. And by doing so, you will example love and strength and call. You'll give your family a legacy that's better than a name, a legacy and inheritance that's better than houses or lands or companies or policies will pale in comparison to giving your children the gift of your faith. 
Let them see you trusting Jesus, that believing you see. You see beyond the coronavirus, beyond economic disaster. You don't fear death or man. Let let them see you responding to the call of Christ. So salvation and discipleship. Help move the obstacles away. Free them from the affairs of this world. I believe that with all my heart. I believe in the authority of Scripture. God's silence is a silence of love. He wants us to ask the big questions. He wants us to pour our hearts to Him. He cares so much that He enters into our sorrows. He's not an impassable, stoic God. Rather, He feels our pain. He weeps with our weeping. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. And yet, He brings joy and resurrection into life, into our afflictions. And so, church, men and women, young and old, dads, believing Him, you're going to find peace and joy in the delay. Where is your perspective? Is it from above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Because Jesus is our Messiah. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I beg of you right now. in your mercy and in your grace that my friends and my family have heard a sermon not preached by my lips but by your Holy Spirit. I beg of you, Lord, if any man or woman, young person is watching this live and they need to hear from you to come forth into salvation, that they will respond. They will be brave enough to write something and ask for help. God, I pray that Christians, that dads will resolve right now, no matter what my past has been, no matter my past mistakes or my failures or my regrets, today I choose to give my life to Jesus and to show my children and my wife an example of God's love and power and call. I pray that revival would come to our church, that it would start with me. I pray that we will not be religious, but have faith that believing we will see, give us perspective this day, in this time, in these circumstances, on this Father's Day. May you be more than just a good, good Father, but the ultimate Father the one whom we turn to and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.